So what is the story of the Bible? What is the story of the New Testament? Well, I, I, need, I feel like I need to review a little bit because I know some of you weren't here last week. And so we begin with Genesis, as you can see over on your left. Genesis is the story of when God created everything that is. Look around. Everything was made by God in the beginning. And God set apart humanity, male and female, to rule the world with him. And not only to rule, but to enjoy him, to enjoy his presence, to be with God, to love him, to to be his children and to build a loving community. God called us to to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, to cultivate goodness and love and beauty and to fill the world with all of the goodness that comes from God. But we know that very quickly in the third chapter of Genesis, everything went bad, that humanity rebelled against God and said, no, we don't want you to be king. We want to be king. And so humanity took the crown and placed it on their own heads and said, we're going to rule. And that is the root of every problem in the world today. The root of every problem in the world today is saying, God, you are not going to be the king. I am. That is how the Bible begins, y'all. It starts out being realistic about the way the world is. It doesn't paint a picture of fairy tales. It tells the truth about the world that we live in. Full of violence, full of dissension, full of strife, full of death, full of sickness. And all of that was a result of our rebellion against God. And so God cast them out of the garden and removed from them the access to the tree of life. So that they would not live forever in their rebellion. But so that God could make a way, as was already his plan from eternity, to make a way to save all who would believe, to save his people. And so God made a promise. You will be my people and I will be your God. And so the story of the Old Testament from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way through the the books of the kings and the books of the prophets, all the way to the end of the return from the exile, as we talked about last week, is a story of God saving the world from ourselves. It's the story of God making a way, making a promise That he will crush the head of the evil one. That old enemy of humanity will be destroyed. That he will call out a community of people with the intention that was given to Adam and Eve to create a community of love and service and sacrifice. That he would call out a people who would be his people, who would be set apart from the world. Israel was supposed to be that people. But as we saw last week, they failed miserably. But God's promise still stands. Great is his faithfulness. And he says of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. And then it seemed like it ended. Because for 400 years after the prophets, Malachi, there was silence. Life went on. The the new temple having been rebuilt, religious life went on. But believers were waiting for their king to finally come. The kings of the past who had failed them, 
They were looking now for a new king, a Messiah, the anointed one, the one who would come and fulfill all of the promises of God. They were waiting and waiting and waiting. And that brings us to the New Testament. To the New Testament and to the gospel. And the theme of the New Testament is this. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. The first four books of the New Testament tell the story of the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Messiah. Of Jesus And so if you want to write this on your chart, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in those first four boxes. These are referred to as the gospel. That word just means what? Y'all know. Good news. It's the proclamation of the king who has come. The king named Jesus. And all four of these books tell the same story, but they tell the same story from different angles, with different audiences and with a different emphasis. And so first we look at Matthew. Matthew begins with a list of names, a genealogy. It's a list of Jesus's human ancestry, beginning with Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. In fact, this book is written to describe the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. Matthew really focuses on how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament hopes and dreams. That the Messiah has truly come. And when Jesus comes, he announces the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand, he says. And not only that, but he teaches us what it means to live in this new kingdom. And this is not a kingdom like Babylon. This is not a kingdom like even the old Israel. This is a kingdom of service. This is a kingdom of the poor. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He flips everything in the world upside down and says, this kingdom that I am bringing is not like any other kingdom you've ever seen. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the merciful, those who pursue righteousness. The writer of Matthew shows us a king who comes not to be served, but what? To serve. How many of our uh, political leaders have that attitude? That they want to serve. No, they want to be served. That's humanity. But Jesus was not a king like that. He was a king who came to serve. He was a king who came in the end to be rejected. To be crucified and to willingly give up his life so that all of his people could live. That's Matthew. We're going to get to the last part of Matthew in a minute. Next is Mark. Mark is the speedy gospel. Mark is the shortest one of those four. And Mark just jumps right into the action. He doesn't begin with Abraham. He begins with Jesus's ministry. And he just jumps in and he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And then he gets rolling and he gets rolling. And when I was in Greek class, there's this uh, transitional word that keeps getting repeated over and over. And it basically means and then and then and then and next. It's almost like a TV show with no commercials. You ever watch a TV show on Netflix? There's no commercials. That's what Mark is like. Okay, it's just 
The next thing happened, the next thing happened, the next thing happened. I want to read you just a little bit of the scripture from from the beginning of Mark that we read earlier. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit of God descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. It was an audible voice, not something in their heads. It was an audible voice and it came from heaven and it said, you are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled. All of this, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. That's the message of Mark. The kingdom of God is at hand. Mark is writing to a Gentile audience. They don't really know the Old Testament. So he just lays out the facts about Jesus, the son of God. The son of God who has come to take his place as king. Next is Luke. Luke was an intellectual. Luke is a collection of eyewitness accounts that were meticulously gathered and cross-checked. Luke tells us at the very beginning that he's, he's gathered lots of sources and he's put them together in this gospel led by the Holy Spirit. The author of this gospel was a missionary who traveled throughout the known world with Paul preaching the message of the gospel. And he tells us the story of Jesus' birth. Matthew begins with Abraham. Mark begins with Jesus' ministry. Luke begins with Jesus' birth, even before his birth, the foretelling of his birth. And so all the Christmas narratives are right here in Luke. That's where you go on Christmas to read the Christmas narratives. He tells us the story of Jesus' birth and his early life. And he shows us Not only is Jesus, as Mark says, the son of God, but Luke wants to say he's also the son of man. He is not only fully God, but he is fully man. And Luke is my favorite gospel for that reason. Because Luke tells us about Jesus, the king, not only of the Jews, but the king of the world. He tells us that he came to set captives free. That he came to bind up the broken, to give sight to the blind, to raise up the poor from the dust. And to establish the kingdom of God for all people in a dark and brutal world. For all people, not just the descendants of Abraham, but all people. That's the gospel of Luke. Matthew begins with Abraham. Mark begins with Jesus' ministry. Luke begins with his birth. But the apostle John takes us back even further. The apostle John begins... Long ago, before creation, in the eternal inner life of God. Let me say that again. John begins long before creation in the eternal inner life of God. He begins by saying Jesus is the eternal word of God. The great I am who was and is and is to come. Jesus is God. That's the message of John. 
the great I am. And John was one of the 12 disciples. He was an eyewitness, not only to Jesus' life, but to his ministry. And John was one of Jesus' closest friends. One of his closest friends and disciples. And John shows us in a very unique way the love of God for this broken and sinful and rebellious world. John shows us how Jesus' grace is poured out on all kinds of people. From Nicodemus, the religious elite, to the woman at the well, the most despised sinner. From the top of the food chain to the bottom. God's love pours out through the writing of John on everyone. Jesus brings his kingdom in the book of John. He records, the only one to record this, by turning water into wine. That is, he's like, this is the God of love. This is the God who likes to party. This is the God who celebrates love. Do you see that? And that's what the book of John is about. As the four Gospels are laid out, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, everything in them is moving toward the cross. Everything in them is moving toward the cross. And so the Gospels are not uh, uh, primarily about Jesus' ethical and moral teaching. Uh, What they are, and they do include some of that, but what they are is they're moving us forward to the, the apex of history which is the cross, which separates the B.C. from the A.D. The cross is is the center of history. And so all four of these Gospels move us toward the cross. And look, this was confusing for Jesus' followers because they were not expecting a suffering king. They They were expecting a victorious king, a king with power. But Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. And I know some people don't like to hear that. But Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. He went to a torture device. He wasn't rallying people in the streets. Shaking his fist at Rome or the U.S. government. He laid down his life. Because he knew that in weakness, God's strength would come to the whole world. To everyone who would believe. Everything is moving toward the cross. Everyone here is looking forward to the cross. And everyone here is looking back to the cross. The cross rises above the timeline. It rises above the timeline because it is here that Jesus came to defeat an enemy greater than Egypt. An enemy greater than Canaan. An enemy greater than Assyria or Babylon or Rome. He came to defeat an enemy that seems to have won a battle on Friday night. Death itself. The Son of God had to come take on our flesh and die. In order to overcome death. That is why the cross rises above the story. The king became the suffering servant. All our sin laid on him. All God's wrath poured out on Jesus. 
so that for all who believe in him, for all who trust in his name, we can be forgiven. We do not have to bear the weight of shame and guilt that we deserve. Jesus came to take it all from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Because death did not have the last word. All four gospel accounts tell us that Jesus overcame the grave. That he overcame death. That not only did he blow our minds by going to the cross, but he, he, incredib- he just blew us away completely by rising from the grave. By rising from the dead, overcoming sin and death. And by ascending into heaven. And that is how the book of Acts begins. Acts is part two of Luke's gospel. They're not in order, but they're written by the same, the same author, Luke. And Acts is going to tell us a narrative of the story from here all the way through here. Okay, I didn't have a way to show that. I, needed, I should have gotten a long, like maybe a longer block. That would have, that would have been a good way to do it. Maybe next time. But I want you to imagine Acts is telling the story of all of this. Okay, and it's short for something. Acts of the apostles. Right, it's the Acts of the apostles. It's basically, what did they do? (laughs) That's the story of the Acts. It begins with Jesus telling his disciples to go into all the world proclaiming the gospel. He gives them a mission and then he pours out his spirit after he ascends into heaven. There is another realm that exists outside of this creation called heaven. And those of you that are interested in multiverse theory, that's getting at it. Okay, I think it is. I think God's giving us some sense that maybe there's more out there than just this life. And Christians can say, uh, yeah, there is. And we've known that for a very long time. And that's not to say scientists are just catching up. I mean, maybe they are. There's more to this life than what's here in this universe. And that's where Jesus went to heaven. That's exciting to me, actually. Isn't that exciting? Think, man. And so Jesus went to heaven and now he is continuing to bring his kingdom onto this earth. But now he's doing it through his spirit and he's doing it through those who would believe in him. He's doing it through you and me. From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. The kingdom of God is at hand. And we read of a story that begins with a very small mustard seed. And it grows. And it grows. And it grows. And you and I are part of that growth even today. Because this timeline should have an arrow on the end. Because it is continuing to go out. God's enemies become missionaries. Book of Acts. Selfish, self-indulgent people form communities of generosity. Where they sell their possessions and give as anyone has need. (laughs) The kingdom of God. The book of Acts. Racists return to God and embrace those that they once hated. The kingdom of God is at hand. Forgiveness is received from God and spread around into the community of the church. They were called Christians. 
No longer Jews or Gentiles, but Christians. Little Jesus, little Christ. And this new community, this Christian church emerges as the manifestation on earth of the kingdom of God. Someone might say, where's the kingdom of God? Look around. It's the church. The church is the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God on the earth. It's not politics. It's the church. It's a spiritual kingdom. The next 13 books of the New Testament, we've only covered five so far. And as I said last week, the first five are the longest part. All right. And then the next 13 books were written by the apostle who? Paul. That's right. The Apostle Paul was a Jewish religious leader who made a name for himself persecuting followers of Christ. He was an enforcer who looked on as the first Christian martyr was being stoned to death, Stephen. And then God met him on the road to Damascus and he revolutionized his life. He poured out conviction of sin. Why are you persecuting me? And not only did he pour out condemnation and and conviction, but he poured out his mercy. And he said, Paul, 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 you are going to be my witness to the Gentiles. The very people that you hate are the ones that I'm going to send you to. To share with them the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God. God broke into his life transformed his heart by grace. And so the bulk of the New Testament are letters written by this criminal who experienced the grace of God. A criminal who experienced a murderer who experienced the grace of God penned these 13 letters that we have in the New Testament. And there's two halves to every letter of Paul. The first half says what you should believe. In the second half, what you should do. That's just a little clue. You can remember, anytime you open one of these 13 letters, the first part is going to be what you should believe. The second part is what you should do about it. How you should live. So you can think of it as who you should be and what you should do. All right? Be, do. The first book of Paul is a letter to the Romans. I'm going to move through these kind of quickly. I preached a sermon, on, a sermon series on Romans not too long ago. Romans was a letter written by Paul during his missionary journeys. It was a letter that lays out the clearest message of the gospel. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Except for the grace of God, we would be condemned. Praise God for his grace. That's the letter to the Romans. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Next, during his missionary journeys, Paul wrote a few letters to the church at Corinth. These letters were written to believers in the New York City of the ancient world. Or the Los Angeles of the ancient world called Corinth. Corinth was metropolitan. It was diverse. It was full of all kinds of of wicked and evil things all the way down to the gutter Corinth and so Paul's message for the Corinthians was trust Jesus believe in Jesus do not forsake Jesus 
And then he has a lot of counsel for them. How to overcome conflict in the church. How to overcome division. How to deal with marriage struggles. How to overcome idolatry and sexual immorality. How to come together in unity as we worship. Y'all, the Corinthians were showing up to church drunk. That's corn. And Paul is like, that's not cool. <laughs> Don't show up to church drunk. They were, they were drinking all the communion wine before the poor folks got there. I need to do a series on Corinthians. All right. First and second Corinthians. Galatians. This might have been, this might be the oldest of Paul's letters that we have. Galatians. By the way, none of these are in chronological order. They're in order by which ones are the biggest down to the smallest. All of Paul's letters are just laid out that way. Galatians. Galatians was written to the churches in the region where Paul did his first and second missionary journeys. This group of people responded in faith, but they had great opposition from the Jewish people. And the opposition was, okay, it's fine. You can believe in Jesus, but you also have to do these religious rules and things. You have to add that on top. You you can't just be a Christian. You have to be a Jew and a Christian. And Paul writes to them in in no uncertain terms. Paul tells them, it is Jesus alone. It is the grace of God alone. None of your outward works gain you anything with God. None of your good deeds, your circumcision, your uncircumcision, none of it brings you anything when it comes to your relationship with God. I'm going to skip over Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians for now. You go to 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. These are the last two letters that Paul wrote while he was on his missionary journeys. 1st and 2nd Thessalonians were letters written to the fledgling church in Thessalonica. This is modern day Greece. He made it all the way over to modern day Greece. Paul encourages them to devote their lives to walking in obedience to the Lord and to endure hardship as the day of the Lord approaches. And so in these letters, we begin to see that Paul is not only looking back to the cross, but he's also helping believers to look forward to his return. That really really comes out in these two letters to the Thessalonians. Early church endured much suffering, especially in the years coming up to 40 years after Jesus's death and resurrection, the, the year AD 70. Because it was in that year that the Romans sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple for a second time. Never to be rebuilt. Even today, there's no temple in Jerusalem. And so as that year approached, the Roman emperors became more and more hostile toward Christians. In fact, they were blamed for the, a fire that broke out in the city of Rome. They endured so much suffering. In fact, so much suffering that the Apostle Paul ended up being imprisoned and sent to Rome and he was in prison in Rome and that's when he wrote the the three books that I skipped over he wrote the letters he wrote the letter to the church in Ephesus where John was a pastor Uh, he, he or ended up being a pastor Paul calls the Ephesian church to be united in their shared faith 
He says, it is by grace you have been saved, not of works. It is a gift of God. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, but it's by grace that you're saved. And so he calls them to a unity around the grace of God. He calls them to tear down the dividing wall of hostility that exists between Jew and Gentile or between male and female or between slave and free. Paul urges the church to fight spiritual battles, to put on the full armor of God so that in the day of the wicked one, they might stand. And so this downward area represents when Paul is in prison in Rome. He penned the letter to the Ephesians. Next, he penned the letter to the Philippians. Probably my favorite of Paul's letters. Just for those of you taking notes. JP's favorite letter from Paul. But the letter to the Philippians, Paul loves them. He loves them so that they're generous. And he's so grateful for them. And he, he tells them, he pleads with them to have the mind of Christ who humbled himself, to, who came to the earth. He says, let's have that same attitude of humility. Let's have that same attitude of humility. Look, he says, When difficulties come, don't worry, don't fret, but cling to the Lord in prayer. Man, I got to tell you guys, Jasmine's testimony yesterday, she told us, she said, I've just been praying. (laughs) And so the Lord has met her in prayer. And that's what Paul calls the church at Philippi to do, to pray. When you're worried, when you're anxious, pray. The last letter, or not the last letter, but one of two letters that he writes from one of two remaining letters is the letter to the church at Colossa. Uh, Colossa was in a, a kind of the, the backwoods, kind of a country town. And Colossa, um, he speaks about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He reminds them of the worthlessness of their religion. And he really preaches this idea that it's only Jesus we should look to, not to our worldly systems. And so I want to skip forward. Because as I said, these are not in chronological order. To the, to the letter of Philemon. Um, Philemon lived in Colossae. Okay, so he, he lived there. And these two letters went together. Um, Coloss- Colossians and Philemon were sent together to, Col- to Colossae. Philemon, um, well, before I get to that, Paul, while he was in prison, Paul met a runaway slave. He met a runaway slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus uh, was, was not a good dude. Uh, he, was, he was in jail for some other reason, not for the gospel. <laughs> and Paul shared Christ with him, and he was converted. He put his faith in Christ, and he, his sins were forgiven. And Paul, as Paul led him to Christ in the course of their discussion, he discovered that they had a common connection. That Onesimus had run away from the household of Philemon, who lived in Colossae, who Paul had also led to faith. And so Paul writes this short letter. It's a very short letter. You can read it in two minutes. He, he wrote this short letter to Philemon, who was the guy who lived in Colossae, and he wrote the letter to ask Philemon to forgive Onesimus for whatever he had done. If he stole from him, whatever he had done when he left, he asked Philemon to forgive him. But it didn't stop there. 
Paul also, and this is incredible in, in this time in history, what I'm about to say. Paul not only asked Philemon to forgive Onesimus, but he asked Philemon to apply the gospel of the kingdom to set him free. To not receive him back as a slave, but as a brother. This kind of thing does not happen in the ancient world. And Paul is, you can read it. He's, he doesn't like, well, he, he's pretty forceful okay, with Philemon. He's pretty forceful with him. He says, it's not as if you don't owe me your life. I mean, he's really digging into him. And he calls him to receive this man, Onesimus, not as a slave, but as a brother. That is the gospel of the kingdom. The three remaining letters of Paul were written after Paul's release from prison. And so Paul did end up getting out of prison in Rome. The end of the book of Acts tells us that he was on his own recognizance. He was living uh, in a house in Rome. He was doing ministry. Some people think he went on a fourth missionary journey. Um, The New Testament doesn't tell us that. But it could be during that time that he penned the remaining three letters. The the, the two letters to Timothy. Now, Timothy was Paul's son in the faith. He was uh, a fellow partner in the gospel. He was a fellow missionary. And uh, he was like a son to Paul. And so Paul writes these two letters toward the end of his life. Second Timothy is probably the last letter that Paul wrote um, because he's talking about dying in there and that he's been poured out as a drink offering. And so these letters written to Paul's son in the faith lay out a plan for how the church should be led and sustained after the death of the apostles because they're realizing Jesus didn't tell us when he was going to return But it doesn't look like he's going to return before we die. And so the Holy Spirit lays out a plan for the apostles to sustain the church. And this is where in the book of 1 Timothy we read about the establishment of elders and deacons to be uh, the the spiritual leaders of the church. And and so that is uh, set up in these letters, not way back here, but, but here toward the end of Paul's life. Paul repeats the same message. In the letter to Titus, Titus is another young church planter. Titus uh, was, a, was a pastor in a community like Orangeburg. Uh, it had, it was Crete and nobody liked Crete. Everybody had jokes about Crete. Is that true here? Everybody's got jokes about Orangeburg. Well, Titus was a church planter in Orangeburg. Crete. Okay. And so, uh, and it's. Uh, an incredible uh, situation because of this bad reputation. Titus really had his work cut out for him. But God is always planting churches. He's always planting his kingdom in places where the soil is hard. In the places where it's going to be hard. And so if you feel like life is hard in Orangeburg, yes, it is. And this is where God wants to plant his kingdom. The remaining letters of the New Testament are not written to specific churches like the letters of Paul, but they're written to Christians scattered throughout the known world. The letter to the Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians throughout the Roman Empire, and it it quotes the Old Testament extensively and builds a strong case that Jesus is greater, greater than the angels. 
greater than any of the Old Testament Bible heroes. In fact, uh, the author of Hebrews says that all of those Old Testament heroes were looking in faith to Jesus. They were all looking in faith to Jesus. That's the message of the Hebrews. The next letters, uh, first and second, uh, James was written by Jesus' half-brother, James. This is one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. I know it's way at the end, but it was one of the earliest books written. And it was written uh, to a group of believers uh, who were probably Jewish Christians. And they had gotten a hold of the idea of grace. And they loved it. They loved the idea so much that they started to go kind of buck wild. All right, because they were like, we got grace. We can do whatever we want to do. Hallelujah. And their church, their church was getting out of control. And so James, the Lord's brother, wrote to them and said, faith without works is dead. (laughs) Right. You see, they had gotten so excited about grace that they forgot that God calls us to godliness. God calls us to live righteous lives empowered by grace. But not taking it, taking advantage of it. First and second Peter written by the Apostle Peter himself, the man who denied Jesus three times, who Jesus restored at the end of the Gospel of John. First and second Peter was written to God's people scattered throughout the the known world, throughout Asia Minor in particular. And he reminds them of the grace of God and he teaches them how to live in the kingdom of God as exiles and as sojourners in this dark world. First and second Peter read a lot like some of Paul's letters. Next we have first, second, and third John. These short letters. We can do all three of them. These short letters were written to address issues that were happening in the church late in the first century. False teachers had begun to come into the church and confuse people. They had begun to teach that Jesus only appeared to be in the flesh, but he didn't actually appear in the flesh. And John, who was an eyewitness, was saying, if you don't believe that Jesus appeared in the flesh, then you're not a Christian. It's important not just not to believe that Jesus is just an idea or he's just a spirit, but he actually came in the flesh that he actually took on flesh. That's what these letters are largely about. John beautifully describes again the love of God. Remember his gospel. So much of his gospel is reflected in these letters. The love of God for sinners. um, That we are the children of God. That we are adopted and brought into God's family. It's a love that drives us to love one another. It's a love that drives us to spread the love of God throughout the world in his kingdom. A kingdom of love. The final book of the Bible is named Revelation. It was also written by the apostle. Oh, I skipped Jude. Don't forget Jude. Sorry. (laughs) Jude is a short letter written by one of Jesus's other brothers. All right. Who was with the apostles from from the beginning. Jude is a short letter calling believers to contend for the faith against those false teachers who are leading people away from the grace of God. So another letter at the end of at the end of the first century uh, calling people back to God's grace and now the last letter 
It's a letter of Revelation. It's a book of Revelation. Not Revelations. Revelation. One Revelation. A Revelation given to John at the end of his life, probably around the year 85 or 90 AD. He's old. He's been exiled. He's been exiled. Jerusalem, the temple has been destroyed. And God gives the apostle John, the one whom Jesus loved, a vision. A vision of what was to come. What was to take place in the future. There's a lot of difficult uh, difficult concepts and ideas and images in the book of Revelation. But what I want you to know about it today is that the message of Revelation was actually written to seven churches. So just like every other letter here written to churches or to God's people, Revelation also was written to seven churches. In fact, the first one, Ephesus, is where John was the pastor. So he's writing to seven churches in this one little region of Asia Minor. So it's, it's not just an apocalyptic sort of prof- prophetic work, but it was actually written to real Christians. So we should read it that way. As we read Revelation, we should read it as what is this telling us about our life right now? And the message that God wants to end his scripture with is a message that doubles down on the fact that the judgment is coming. That evil will be destroyed. That all evildoers, including the angels who have fallen, will be cast into the lake of fire and the judgment. But that God will establish a new heaven and a new earth. And that all who believe, all who are in his kingdom, will be brought into this future restored perfection of what was in the beginning of what fell and of what God has been remaking and that the lamb of God will be lifted up not on a cross but on a throne and in that day the kingdom of God will not only be at hand it will be firmly established forever in that day the kingdom of God will cover the earth and there will not be any more sickness or death. There will not be any more war or crying or violence. But in that day, Jesus will be crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We will be his people and he will be our God forever. And that, friends, is the story of the Bible. Lord, we do give you praise. Lord, we give you thanks. We give you praise and we give you thanks that this is the story of the Bible. That you are king and that you invite us into relationship with you. And that while we live in this world, the kingdom of God is already at hand. It is already broken into the dark world through the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus and into this world where the church has now spread throughout the world. And we are the fruit of that, Lord. We thank you that we have been called out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And Lord, I pray that that we would continue to see growth in your kingdom. Lord, that we would see 
people's lives transformed, that we would turn from our sin and turn to you, repenting of our wicked ways, of our selfishness, that we would cast down our crowns at your feet because you are the king. Lord, help us. Help us as a church, Lord. We are, we are struggling. We are suffering. And so much of this word is a message for us. All of it is. Lord, give us ears to hear. Lord, I pray for each person here that this, these messages would be a challenge to open the word. To read what it says. To understand how it fits together. And Lord, to know more about you, our King. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. We bless you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.